I make <clears throat> I make calendars for my family around Christmas time. Calendars, family calendars, fill them with pictures of <clears throat> family gatherings and grandkids. And I think it's like I think it's because I like history. And I like noting time and seasons, and so I sometimes fill up calendar space. And I like looking online at days or observations that we don't always note. Did you know that August 7th is National Lighthouse Day? And you're like, I know, and it's April 16th. So you're like, this matters because. I bring this up. Um, let's see here. I bring this up, and I actually put in the calendar National Lighthouse Day, and I don't, I wondered why. There's nobody in our family that lives near lighthouses, I don't think. Anyways, um, I just like lighthouses, I guess. I just like the, how they look. Perhaps it's the adventurer in me that likes the idea of a lit up lighthouse on a dark night when you need it. And there, there's one verse here in chapter 25 of Acts. That's where we'll be if you haven't turned there yet. Verse 21 that just sticks out to me like a lighthouse. It's And all the stuff around seems, and of course is, being the Word of God, is important. But that lighthouse, lighthouse verse is going to be as beautiful and mysterious and inviting and unmoving and enchanting as a lighthouse. And to get us into some context here, I want to, I want us to consider just two numbers to kind of jog our memories. Four and two. Counting Festus today, Paul will have really been in front of four audiences for this non-crime that he's committed. Before a, a riotous crowd in a tribune named Lysias on the day it happened. Before the Sanhedrin and Lysias on the next day. And then before Felix, the Roman governor. And then Festus, the next Roman governor. So he's been before four audiences. The next number is two. It's been two years after he was safely with Felix. Felix kept him in prison for two years. And now we're, we're continuing the story with Festus. And also concerning today, he's going to have undergone two conspiracies to kill him. And he's going to make his second Roman appeal today. He appealed to, to his Roman citizenship with Lysias, so therefore he wasn't flogged. And now he's going to appeal to Caesar today after another ruling. What is the crime if we need our memories jogged? Well, Paul was at the temple. And as a Christian, he was not required to do sacrifices. He was there nonetheless for the sake of unity. And at this time in Christianity's infancy, some Jews were still convinced that they should accept Christ as their Messiah, but also do Jewish worship. And it's easy to see from Paul's writings that he wasn't one of them. He says we're freed from the law. Nevertheless, for the sake of other people's consciences, he was at the temple fulfilling a vow he said he would do. And while there, to finish the vow, some rowdy Jewish enemies of Paul who did not care for Christ or for Paul laid their hands on him in the temple, not in the same way we just laid hands on Ralph. 
And they came up with this jacked up charge that he did a no-no for first century Jews, that he has brought a Gentile, a non-Jew, into the temple. And the Bible makes plain that Paul did not do this. He did have a friend who was a Gentile in Jerusalem, but he never brought him into the temple. But that's the charge, and quite literally a riot ensued. And where we find ourselves is after the three times he stood before audiences, and he's two years later, it's the same crime, same reason for the prolonged imprisonment. In fact, we were told again at the end of chapter 24, the previous governor, Felix, left Paul in prison for two years, even though he, Felix, didn't believe he was guilty. But he did it as a favor for the Jews, not because he likes them so much, but it's because they have dirt on Felix. So that's what, here, at least I'm keeping your enemy in prison. So where we pick it up, Felix has left his post as governor. A new governor's come in. His name is Portius Festus. I would love to invite you to stand one more time now for the reading of the Word of God. If you're able to stand, Acts 25, verses 1 through 21. Let's read that together. We read, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils, as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him 
about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, your word is weighty. Your Holy Spirit inspired the writing of these words. Your Holy Spirit has preserved these words. Your Holy Spirit is here today. He's a present teacher speaking to each and every head and heart. Help us, Holy Spirit, to remain yielded to you, to open our hearts, to not have a hardness about it, but to have soft, receptive hearts to your will and way and your words. Lord Jesus, thank you again for dying for our sins. Thank you for rising again. Help us to not use grace as a license to sin, but if there are things we need to repent of, may this be a day of repentance. If we need encouragement or comfort, we trust you to bring that as well. Whatever it is that is your desire, Help us, Holy Spirit, to receive what you would say to us today. Please get me out of the way and speak. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> to keep with a lighthouse motif, I imagine our text in three movements of somewhat of a seafaring nature. What we're going to talk about as we unpack this text today is the storming Sanhedrin, the wishy-washy Roman, and lastly, chatter on the radio, since they all had radios back then. So, did you go to Bible college? No. So, we have this front, this storm that seems to be brewing over two years, really. This storming Sanhedrin... Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province. This is the new governor after Felix. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. It's geographically heading south. Jerusalem is below Caesarea, but elevation-wise, it's up. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So not only is uh, Festus the new governor, but the Sanhedrin, that's likely the chief priests and principal men of the Jews, as the verse said it, two years prior, or the previous chapters of Acts, they had a priest named Ananias. Not anymore. But if you remember, the, the Sanhedrin, led by Ananias, had heard Paul's defense, and they were privy to a group of conspirators who had tried to kill Paul then. And they were affirming of that conspiracy. But now under the new leadership, a man named Ishmael, if you're curious, but this Sanhedrin is now the source of the conspiracy to kill Saul. They're the plotters. Apparently two years that had passed, as long as Paul had been in prison, nothing had been forgotten their animosity towards him, their feelings about him have apparently intensified and festered enough to be willing to come up with a conspiracy to kill him themselves. We read on, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea 
and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. That lousy Festus just playing by the rules. Maybe he knows scheming, storming, conniving Jews more than he lets on. History tells us that while Felix was like the epitome of a lousy ruler, most historians have little to say about Festus, and what they do say is generally positive. He maintained order. He kept bandits out of the way. I guess what more could you want or ask? But he's not dumb. He says, you know, if a Roman citizen is in Roman arrest, you can come make your case against him before the Roman courts. After he, Festus, stayed among them in Jerusalem, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing him many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. It's like the same attack in the previous chapter, if you remember that two weeks ago. It's the same stuff. It's the same storm that has been brewing. But don't hear that as, so what? Fair and honest courts will prevail. Fair and honest courts. These sorts of attacks, though they're jacked up and not true and not able to prove, it's what got Jesus killed. This sort of language around these court cases, we were, we were told back in, uh, when the riot started in Acts 21-27 that the whole crowd was stirred up, instigated. The crowd yelling for Christ to be crucified, which eventually led to, to what? To, cru- to crucifixion. They too were stirred up by the same stripes of people trying to murder Paul now. In fact, our author Luke would say in Luke 23-23 that this crowd stirred up and instigated by the high priest and the Sanhedrin, quote, their voices prevailed. And when it came time for Christ's crucifixion, that's what happened. And although there are, quote, many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove, That was verse 7 in our text. We hear the same language when it came to Jesus' trials. Mark 14, 56 says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And so the harrowing point still is, is that all these jacked up trials and instigated mobs prevailed. Christ was crucified in the end. And this scheming, storming Sanhedrin are the same folks who successfully murdered Christ, and they think they might murder Paul now if the storm overtakes Paul out on the seas, if you get the picture. What's more, Pilate eventually succumbed to the schemers. He washed his hands of blame. He was backed into a corner, but the same is going to happen here. Only Festus will wash his hands in succumbing to Paul's desires, which spares Paul for the time being, so that's good. So we pick up the story now concerning the wishy-washy Roman in verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. This is what Paul has been saying, if you've been reading and following along. In fact, this one sentence summarizes his defense in chapter 24. He, He believes everything the Jews believe. Plus, that the Messiah has come. 
And at the, the temple, he was doing what Jews do at the temple, a vow. And as far as Rome and Caesar, he's done nothing. But he's come to Jerusalem for the Jewish festival and to bring offerings for poor Jewish Christian people. And so he's innocent in all these matters. Verse 9, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So notice the compromise that Festus is trying here. He's a political governor, and he's trying to balance the relations between the Romans and the Jews well. So he says, you know, I could take you, Paul, to Jerusalem, where the Jewish leaders wanted him, but then he says, still he, Festus, I'll just hear the charges there. So we're in Jerusalem where they want you to be, but I'll I'll be the one listening to you. It would be as it was with the tribune Lysias, who first heard the charges from the high priest in the Jewish council in Jerusalem. Festus is trying to assure Paul of his own presence, but he is also tossing a bone to the Jewish leaders. But it was Paul who was first made aware of the first conspiracy to kill him in Jerusalem. He had a nephew who overheard the conspiracy being planned. And Paul doesn't have a bad memory. Though it's been two years, just as the Jews were conspiring to do the same, likely there's no way we can know that if Paul knew of the new conspiracy, but he probably wouldn't put it past them if he didn't know what they were up to. At least suppose that they might be up to another ambush. So, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, You have appealed to Caesar. You shall go. Paul has been in prison for two years waiting for a verdict. And it's beginning to be revealed to him that Festus is not just making much more ground than Felix did. He's not judging on Paul's case. But he did make mention of that harrowing thought, returning him to Jerusalem where the plot had once been laid to murder him. And so essentially, since no verdict was being reached, Paul is exercising a right granted to citizens to appeal to Caesar. There's no verdict to the appeal, but perhaps that's what Paul was hoping on. There's no verdict. You can't apparently judge. So essentially, if your predecessor or if you haven't been able to make a ruling, perhaps a higher court can. For Festus, no doubt when he conferred with his counsel, he likely realized there's a lot of benefits here. Now Festus is out of the equation. He's not going to make a ruling to execute a Roman citizen on weak practically non-existent charges which would likely one day bite him if some other Roman ruler took note of like, what were you doing here? But he's also not going to release Paul and provoke the wrath of the Jewish ruling establishment who find Paul guilty. In other words, Festus is removing himself as Pilate did. He's not going to have his hands Guilty one way or another. Pilate removed himself essentially into the hands of the Jews, where Festus removed himself essentially into the hands of Paul. 
So, while Festus is noted for being a better ruler than Felix, he apparently still has no backbone (laughs) to make a ruling on a case that he's going to tell Agrippa here in a bit, a case that he really knows what's happening. He knows Paul is guiltless as far as charges go toward him, toward Paul. Rome has this unique relationship with the lands it conquers. It sets up a client, client states with client rulers. There is a client state of Judea, primarily with a client king, a king in the back pocket of Rome who rules over the Jews. Perhaps it gives some sort of feeling of independence, but not really. You're not really independent. Even so, with this storm on the seas and with Paul in the middle of it, we're going to see the Roman ruler and the Jewish king talk like ship boat captains might talk over the radio. That's the the third movement, chatter on the radio. So we see verse 13. And when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice, Bernice is actually Agrippa's sister, just serving as queen, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So while Festus is the Roman governor, Agrippa, he's actually Agrippa II, is what is called the Roman Jewish client king, or the king of Judea. So we have the controlling state, client states within the empire. And so Agrippa would rule over only traditional Jewish lands and people, and there's a lot more. That's just a general statement. I'm not going to bore you with getting any more detail. But for internal affairs, Rome might let them rule and then intervene only when they feel like they need to. Paul, when he was about to be flogged after the riot, appealed to his Roman citizenship. He was both Jewish and also Roman. This is why Roman courts have been handling his case. But I think Luke, the author of Acts, wants us to see shades of Christ's trials in this. Back in Luke 23, Pilate, the man who would eventually wash his hands of Christ's fate, were told he became friends with Herod Antipas. That's Agrippa's uncle. So now, as if history is repeating, the Roman governor Festus is befriending King Agrippa II, the Jewish king. He shows up, verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. Interestingly enough, the previous this is the previous Roman governor he's referring to. Phyllis was actually Agrippa and Bernice's brother-in-law. Now there's there's like a little family tree on your outlines if because it's a little confusing all the family relations. But Felix had done a no-no and he married into the Jewish family. So Festus, the current Roman ruler, he continues, verse 15. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So under Roman law, defendants, in this case Paul, had a right to defend themselves from accusations in public hearings. And and the way that Festus is reporting this to Agrippa, he's saying these Jewish leaders wanted to take Paul without a hearing, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe Felix heard him, but he never made a ruling. These leaders wanted to bypass that hearing and go straight to sentencing in Jerusalem away from my jurisdiction. That doesn't fly for a Roman like Paul. 
And Festus's point is that Paul needed a fair trial. And so, when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day they took my seat, or I took my seat, on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. So this is consistent with all the Romans who have heard the case, even down to the tribune in Jerusalem. Lysias, his first letter that he sent Paul with to Governor Felix said, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And Felix, the previous governor himself, seemed to find no fault in him. He was just doing the Jews a favor to keep Paul in prison. And now Governor Festus finds no fault in Paul. In fact, he says, the accusers brought no charge as far as I'm concerned, probably because the accusers just wanted Paul maligned or dead, but they had no meat to merit that. But here's the thing. Here's the scary silence. Here's the where what is unspoken speaks volumes. They brought no charge in his case of such evils, as I supposed. Stop. What should follow after that? So I released him. Right? Like, the tribune who sent him suspected nothing. Felix never made a ruling. I don't find any fault. It's been two years. So now I'm just going to send him to Caesar? (laughs) This is where it's now entirely a political matter. In fact, in most of the troubles with the law throughout the Roman Empire, as Paul has made his missionary trips, he's been released for this same matter. The rulers, the Gentile rulers, have always seemed to say, you know, it's a theological spat. It's not a civil matter. The charges are done. You're free, Paul. But whenever he's in Jerusalem, where the Jews have a say, which is why Festus himself is now buttering up with Agrippa, Festus, as positive as a leader he may have been, summarized in history books, he's still playing politics more than judge here. Verse 19. Rather, they had certain dispute, certain points of a dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Here's the lighthouse. Here's what I want to pull over and talk about. Here's actually why I was going to preach this last Sunday for Easter, but I just felt led to preach somewhere else. But my OCD wants to finish all of our third movement before I come back to this. However, though, let's let's see how this feeds into Agrippa's family. Agrippa's uncle, Herod Antipas, executed John the Baptist, forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, No doubt for preaching about the Messiah. Also preaching about his jacked up marriage. Herod, that same Herod, was also conferred with Pilate about Jesus. Agrippa's father, Agrippa I, martyred James the Apostle, Acts 12.2 and imprisoned the apostle Peter, no doubt, with intentions to do the same thing. And we're going to see how Agrippa II responds to Paul next week, but suffice it to say, it seems somewhat likely that Agrippa may have heard about this Jesus. Maybe not Paul, but was definitely familiar with Jesus and his followers. Festus finishes this part by saying, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried They're regarding them. So now I think Festus is trying to muddy up his clear judgment of what he just said. 
He's trying to maybe play friendly to the Jewish ruler. I thought him innocent, but if these theological spats do need investigating, I was at a loss how to do that. I was going to send him to Jerusalem and hear him there. Verse 21, But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So let's back up to verse 19 and and hear this small matter in the mind of Festus that's actually of utmost importance. It's the lighthouse that's sticking out for Paul amid the storming Sanhedrin, the wishy-washy Roman, and the chatter on the radio. When, When the darkness seems heavy and the future seems foggy, the storm seems raging. This is the lighthouse. I guess, again, Festus reports, rather they, the Jewish leaders, had certain dispute, points of a dispute with him, Paul, about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. This is really, in fact, why Paul is here. And it's another connection to Christ. When Christ is in chains, before the Jewish leaders, before Pilate, before the crowds demanding his crucifixion, and even though Christ is the one in chains being tugged around, ultimately bearing his own cross through Jerusalem, the whole time it is Christ who is in charge. It is Christ who is in charge. Our author Luke records This back in Acts 4, the apostles are praying together amid persecution and they begin a prayer calling God the Sovereign Lord. And they say in verses 27 and 28, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the men we've been mentioning along the way, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You hear the ownership in that. Now we're not forgetting, we're not dismissing the moral responsibility of all the people gathered against Christ or against Paul. But amid all of the stuff, people gathering against Christ, Christ declares, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Christ's not losing anything. Christ isn't being coerced. His will, His ways, or His purposes aren't being thwarted. Rather, they're being fulfilled. And so, it is Christ's will, ways, and purposes being fulfilled in Paul. Two years into a jacked up trial, the stormy seas surging. When all of this started, Paul had a dream where the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you also must testify in Rome. This has always been about Christ. This is why Paul's here. That's what he's enduring for. So out on the seas, the the Sanhedrin is storming. The the Roman is just wishy-washy-ing. Made that up. There's chatter on the radio. And underneath the raging waves, the torrential downfall, the foggy visibility, Paul sees and knows, and you need to see and know the lighthouse. The reason, the bulwark, the blazing light where you can direct your ship to a certain Jesus who was dead, but we assert to be alive. Not to borrow too much thunder from our next chapter, but Paul will say to King Agrippa in the next chapter that it was a light that blinded him. 
and converted him. The light of Jesus. And about this Jesus, he will say that this Jesus sent him to Jews and Gentiles to, quote, open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, says God to Paul. And so this is what keep, keeps Paul going. And it's what can keep you and I going. Are you suffering? Are you experiencing trials? Whatever is happening, this can be your goal and by God's grace to open the eyes of who you're around. To show them the God who turns people from darkness to light. To pull people from the power of Satan to God. And to know that people may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we unpacked court case, it was unpacking a lot of cultural context, a lot of people and places and history, but for some reason your spirit highlighted verse 19, just a simple judgment of the facts by a pagan ruler. This is all about some guy named Jesus who died, but Paul asserts to be alive. But Father, that's the lighthouse that... I feel like Paul has been keeping his gaze set at as he faces some stormy seas. And Father, may it be our lighthouse that we cling to to know that this is all for Christ, who died but rose again and is the Savior of the world. That no matter how things are dark, your light burns brighter. Uh, Father, no matter how powerful we think Satan is, your, your power has rescued us from the power of Satan. And Father, no matter how guilty or ashamed we might be with sins, you have the power to forgive. And you do offer forgiveness for those who seek you. And so Father, help us as we go through our own trials, our own storms, our own problems. No matter what is happening, may we trust you and you alone to be worth it. To know that all of this is for you. Father, would you guide us safely to uh, the port of your home. Father, we thank you and we love you and we ask and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.